Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm an interviewer, journalist and broadcaster. And for the first decade of this century, I did for the Irish radio station RT Radio 1 a music series titled Under the Influence. Sadly, that title was subsequently used, be it stolen consciously or otherwise, for a similar MTV show. So now, after revisiting the master tapes of those old interviews, I've decided to turn the best into a podcast series called The Music That Made Me. I may even add the subtitle, Made Me Want to Make Music. Either way, what follows is one of those shows, minus music, which for copyright reasons I can't include. Some of the full shows and many of my other radio programs are available on Mixcloud.com. And if you want to read any articles that arose out of these interviews, you can check out JoeJacksonInterviewer.com. Enjoy the show. Okay, Mark Knopfler. The press release for Sailing to Philadelphia says it's the work of an artist absorbing the influences of 200 years of musical heritage from both sides of the Atlantic. Is that true? Well, I don't write that stuff. I know. And I, I haven't read it, but, uh, you know, it's certainly... Uh, uh, well, it's about right, actually, I suppose. I mean, in a way, I, I, I suppose it is. I mean, I ended up in a lot of folk joints when I was a kid because I, I didn't have an amplifier, basically. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't afford one. All right. I didn't have the heart to ask my dad for one because he'd shelled out for an electric guitar and um, I'd... Uh, I, you know, I didn't have the heart to ask him for an amplifier, so I blew up the radio, and uh, playing the guitar through the 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 amp in the radio. Yeah, I got I adjusted the jacket. I got got it just. I got it altered to the, uh, the little electric shop. Right. I got a little red jacket and a little black jacket at yeah. the end of it, and plugged it into the back of the well, radio. Where your pickup record player should have gone. And uh, yeah, <laughs> and I got a one and a half watts of seething pulsating power, <laughs> but. Uh, but um, I used to borrow friends' acoustic guitars, and uh, that got me into folk places. And uh, I learned a lot about um, uh, about uh, Celtic music actually uh, in those places that I did, probably hadn't expected to. And although I was really interested in American folk music from being such a Bob Dylan fan and everything else, you know, because I'd got his first, uh, heard his first album when I was about eleven years old. So I was interested in folk music anyway, you know, and I got interested that sort of backwards that way, you know. Um, but uh, I, uh, uh, I learned how to finger pick, and I'm glad that things kind of went that way because I sort of went down a dual track. But didn't your was it your uncle Kingsley who taught you twelve bar blues and boogie woogie on piano? That was around the age of eleven or twelve too, wasn't it? Oh, that, I was that younger. Was, was half you? that age, yeah. Okay, so is this this famous image I just conjured before we started doing the interview of you with the tennis racket doing your Elvis impersonation? I think the tennis racket must have been uh, fairly late. I mean, uh, uh, music for me started when I was a baby, uh, uh, crawling about on the floor, and I'm told that I could sing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer right the way through at 18 months. Okay. Uh, uh, so I must have had a facility for remembering the words and the tunes. And if whenever, whenever they wanted to shut me up, you know, my mum would sing to me, and it, uh, it was a done deal. What would, um, you, what would you sing? I don't know. She probably would sing. She would probably sing things from uh, the radio that were going on at the, you know, right. at the time. And I remember, you know, songs from South Pacific and things like the Some Enchanted Evening and things like that. When I was crawling about on the floor, I used to listen to listen with mother a lot uh, uh, when I was a kid. And uh, you can still get those things on CD now. Apparently, these co collections are 
Housewives uh, Chase and all that, all the work, work music while you yeah, work, music BBC while programs. work and all of that, BBC programs. So if we were to put, kick off with a song that would remind you of those days, would it be an early rock and roll, boogie woogie, or, or what would it be? Uh, or do it you want to hear be, one of those BBC no, songs? One of the earliest ones would have been um, uh, the Big Rock Candy Mountain, uh, which was Burl Ives. Uh, but actually, Burl Ives was not the original version. I have heard the original version, in fact, and it was a, a little rougher. But, uh, you know, and I didn't know what... I mean, w w when we were listening to those songs as little kids, we didn't know what uh, a hobo was. You know, didn't know it was a hobo song. Didn't even know what a hobo was. Right. But right. we just liked it, okay. you know. And uh, we didn't know the term country and western right. or any of that. I mean, that was one of the wonderful things about Innocence is pre-Skiffle. Uh, and even the Innocence of Skiffle, which, I mean, we'll, get, we'll come to... There was this lovely innocence around right. at the time that we didn't care if music was black or white or happy or sad. We just liked it. So do you want to hear Burl Ives or is there another one? Burl Ives? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I'd love to hear that just because, I mean, I'm sure I still know all the words to it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, Mark Knopfler, we got a surprise for you there. That was the original of that indeed Not the was, Big Rock Yes, Candy that indeed Mountain. was the original, which is actually on the soundtrack, uh, which has just come out to uh, the George Clooney thing, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And uh, um, that's a wonderful uh, collection of music uh, that's on there. There's some tremendous stuff on there from uh, my friend Gillian Welsh. And, uh, All right. Uh, uh, and uh, she's with Emmy Lou, another friend of mine, and I should name drop in here. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, Alison Krauss. All right. Um, and there's some, there's some tremendous uh, stuff on there. It's put together by people and Burnett. Okay, I'll drop another name then. I believe you were 15, you saw Chuck Berry, and you were in heaven. Oh, man. Well, you're jumping massively. <laughs> Am I? Okay, now. well, it's, uh, you, you, you take me through the actual uh, line. Well, I But Chuck was electric rock and roll you oh, were encountering yeah. there. Yeah, when I was 15, Newcastle City Hall, and uh, Chuck Berry, uh, I mean, I knew I was going to see something good, but I never realised it was going to be that good, and he came on stage doing the, the big, you know, duck walk thing, staring at the audience and playing his guitar, you know. And um, I was completely mesmerised. And it's funny, you know, that I thought the City Hall was such a big place when I was that age. And whenever I've gone back to play there, and I am going to go back to play there again on this, this tour coming up, you know, but I always try and get back there. And um, it's such a tiny little hall. Do you do the duck walk just out of homage well, to I choke? Well, I will. I have been known, you know... I have been known to do that. But uh, what was it about Chuck? Was it the blend of the lyrics, the power of the man performing, the guitar work? What was it that really made that impact? Well, uh, it's, a, it's a combination. I mean, the, the, he's one of the greatest lyricists in rock and roll. I mean, the, the words just bouncing and ricocheting off each other, echoing off each other. It's one of the great things about the language, that it does that, um, or can do that if you do it right, you know. And uh, he certainly did it right, uh, with just about everything that he wrote. And, so, uh, so for people who might want to hear what you're talking about, let's try on a Chuck Berry tune from then. Yeah. You want to pick one? Oh, God, I could pick. I could pick. I mean, well, I mean, there's so many, aren't there? Promised Land. Promised Land is not that often played. Will we try it? Sure. Gospel bass to it, too, which is great. Kind of gospel play, feel you to play, it. Yeah, you could play the... Yeah. Hmm. Chuck's original version, not Presley and James Burton's thing from the 70s. Right. But that was good. The Johnny Horton one. Johnny Horton, yeah. Okay. The, the, but uh, 
uh, or you could play Brown Eyed Handsome. Oh no, you never oh. can tell is lovely. Oh, that's a great one, yeah. Yeah, that was a later one, 64, 63, Yeah, that was a later one, but what a lovely... Okay, let me answer that. I think it is... It's, I'll, I'll give that question to you again, because the kids growing up and all the 45s, all rock, rhythm and jazz, their little collection of records. Yeah, that's right. Great images. Okay, Mark, uh, if I was to play a Chuck Berry song, would you pick one for us? Well, you know, it would be too obvious to play Roll Over Beethoven and all that, and Sweet Little Sixteen, which is a killer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it would. Let's. We'll go for something a little bit more obscure and have. Uh, you never can tell, which I always liked. I could always see the situation and the couple dig the images. teenage wedding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, let's hear about the teenage wedding. You can hear it, can't you? And you know, and he was writing for teenagers too. I mean, you're. A, you know, it's a, it's a reminder that the teenager actually then was a was a was a, a pretty new phenomenon yeah i mean teenagers had started to work and get their own money and um they could afford to buy their own clothes and their own music and it was getting away from the 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 twin set and pearls and all this t moon and june music sure. that was around yeah. and it was it was a whole exciting new time and well, he was Perry, helping define it he absolutely did he absolutely did he was right on the pulse of that the 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 teenage thing the teenage phenomenon yeah 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 okay you know you, you hold me earlier i'm not following the exact lineage here Doesn't but matter. i know as a kid at, at a point like many of us who are into american music i'm british or whatever you made a pilgrimage to the states with your greyhound bus ticket and to see the place blind willie mctell was born was a big buzz for you oh yeah well i was uh i was by that time i think i was about 26 or something and uh i'd i'd be i'd been lucky enough to get a job uh, in a college, I tried to be a musician and, and failed, of course. Uh, and uh, at what level was that failure then? Was that like locally playing, and you just or you didn't? Yeah, I actually even joined a pro band uh, for a couple of months when I left uh, college, and and uh, I was I was sort of feeling a bit defeated. Uh, uh, I'd uh, I'd had uh, some things go wrong and a marriage failure, and I was feeling a bit bashed in, and I got this job teaching at college. Somebody, a friend of mine, rang me up and said there's a vacancy in the English department, and I had a degree in it, so I, you know, I, I gave it a bash, and I was, I had earned more money there, you know, than I'd ever earned in my life, and I got a motorcycle and uh, got myself organized, and I got, a, I got a, a little flat and everything, and I was going along quite well, and I was playing in a rock, a rock a rockabilly an R and B group at, called the Cafe Racers in, in the college and around London around pubs and everything at night time, and I'd saved up enough money to buy a Greyhound bus ticket and uh, and a flight uh, cheap flight to the states, and it and it got me all the way around the states, uh, and even uh, had a little trip down to Mexico. F uh, thrown in actually when I was from LA and uh, I ended up in Philadelphia of all places uh, before I went back home. But was um, it a musical pilgrimage or were you just you just wanted to get away from here? And oh, did you go to the places? It was, it was fantastic. It was a musical pil pilgrimage for me and I went straight down through Atlanta and a Blind Willie McTell country and I remember being very you know excited about all that and uh, down into New Orleans and stayed at the YMCA actually in New Orleans and uh, uh, I mean, it was just a, it was a really, I was really uh, so in electrically alive, you know, with, with, with having built up this whole thing about the music, you know, and, uh, and uh, so it was, a, it was an important, uh, I mean, it even ended, 
on an important note for me because I'd got a little bit stoned and I went to this park in Philadelphia and uh, there was a gospel group singing there, a big black gospel group, and it was just a stunning experience for me. And it reminds you, of course, that, you know, to, to British kids uh, and, you know, and, and I mean a lot of kids probably from, 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 uh, from Ireland, uh, you know, the, 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 the music was so important that we, we, it was, it was, we distilled it, you know, our generation of kids. We, 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 we uh, a lot of kids in Europe too, but the fans somehow, both of knowing the English, the British musicians that came out of that are sort of ultra fans, you know, that we, we, it was rare and it was precious. Right. And uh, you'd have a mate who had two or three blues records and, and because it wasn't just all on tap, that's, I suppose, why I'd sit up to the late at night listening to Radio Luxembourg. If you couldn't afford a record collection, you'd have a mate with a few and that sort of thing. You know, you'd moon over your first, the, the first fender that you ever saw in a shop, you know, all of that. For, you would, you'd, uh, you'd be slightly obsessive about, the, right. about yeah. the whole thing, which, of course, I was. And what about the gospel group? Can we play a gospel tune that would remind you of how that uh, reconnected you with the purity of the music and all that? Is there a gospel? Oh, well, Even I the suppose, gospel group you sing about in your new album, I suppose that they recorded. I suppose you could, you know, if you could take something by the Fairfield Four, that would be nice because that's where this I got the baloney again idea yeah. from. Yeah. Uh, um, I was reading on the on the liner notes the guy that, that wrote the last the liner notes to the last Fairfield Four record. Uh, he'd said, "Oh, it might have had we're touring in the in the deep south in America in the." In the uh, in the in the early fifties, it might have been like uh, you know you you might have had to have had a it might have had to have been a bologna sandwich rather than a steak in a white restaurant. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that's all it took to get me going. I mean, because obviously the bologna thing struck me as the the, the, the possibilities with the word and. Uh, and that's all it took to get me away. So, I mean, you could play anything by, by the Fairfield Four if you like to do that. I have a CD of theirs in my bag by coincidence. I do. Okay. I bought it from my girlfriend. It's an old gospel collection. So we can play the Fairfield Four. Okay, coming out of that, Mark Knopfler, you talked there earlier about kind of earning more money when you were teaching than you had kind of when you were playing the local bands or in bands, or even going before, pro. Yeah. But wasn't it becoming a uh, rock star with Dire Straits and that that gave you enough money to buy a Gibson 50s guitar? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, that that was one of the wonderful things. I mean, I would recommend success to anybody. <laughs> uh, you know, I I got I went into guitars. <laughs> you know, went into guitar shops. Actually, I made great friends with a with a, a very nice Argentinian uh, man who came over to New York with nothing at all and started up a guitar shop. He was a bass player in in Argentina and uh, and he just became a friend and you know he's always st stuck with the best sort of end of things so he, he you know he'd, he'd get some pretty good guitars and um i you know i would i bought a few old fenders and gibsons you know uh in my time i didn't i tried to avoid becoming a collector i didn't want to be a collector i don't want to really be a collector of anything particularly but uh you kind of become a curator uh by accident really all right. I mean, people give you things and you buy things and, you know... What would a Gibson 50s guitar cost? I mean, is it a couple of grand? Is it a lot of money? My first Gibson cost me 
cost me eighty pounds when I when I was back in you know when I was a youngster back okay. in Leeds and and it was uh, I mean it was I don't know where I got that money from because okay. back then I was being paid ten quid a week, let slightly less. And nowadays for a fifty scopes and what kind of price would you pay for it? Lots more. <sighs> yeah, you can pay thousands. Do you? Okay. You can do, yeah. do you still get this, you know, you were talking where the way gospel kind of reconnected you with the purity. When you pick up one of those guitars, do you still remember the kid you were and the buzz you got the first time you actually held your own? Oh. Do you I still mean, get that root feeling? I, I still pull over to the side of the road, you know, when there's a window full of guitars, you know. I still love to look at them. I mean, I was so, I was so into it that I actually, um, I, there was a boy when I was at school making one, in, an imitation, you know, he was making one in the woodwork room and I used to go down there at breaks and after school to watch him make it just so that I had a chance occasionally of just being able to pick the body up all right okay and that's how much I want he was obviously the fender strat kind of shape all right um uh yeah I'm a, I'm afraid I'm still a sucker for and when you talk, you see influences uh cited oh we'll start again yeah yeah, yeah. You see influence decided in terms of your own guitar style, and I've seen uh, Richard Thompson, I've seen J.J. Cale. But the earlier guys, and you played with Chet Atkins, what about the early icons in, we'd say, like Hank in the Shadows or Dwayne Eddy or any of that stuff? Did, would you have hooked into any of that, or would it have been the guys playing like Scotty Moore with, on the rock records and Chuck? Well, it started uh, with uh, the Shadows. Uh, I had an EP. It uh, was one of the first records I ever bought when I was about seven uh, years old, and... Uh, uh, I it was a it was had wonderful land on it and stuff like that. I mean I was so into that all that uh, you know and uh, um, the sound uh, uh, of so Hank of Hank yeah sound. just the sound of that strat you know I was so into the whole thing and, and was it, it was really good actually to be able to because I actually got the chance to try to recreate that and it was a sort of a little tribute thing that was done oh, like a while back and also got the chance to do wonderful lad with hank as well which was great uh but you know it, it meant a lot to me i mean i used to be in the, the kid at the back of the classroom you know making that you know sound you know the teacher would come in off stop making that metallic <laughs> sound at the back of your throat boy what wonderful land yeah, I'd be singing all that and hammering on the desk and doing all the drums on the wipeout on the desk and all oh, that. Oh, wipeout, you know? we all were thrown out of a classroom yeah. for that. Yeah. <laughs> but do you want to hear Wonderful Land again? Oh, yeah. I mean, you went, I mean when, when would you not want to hear that? <laughs> okay, Mark, we've moved out of uh, Wonderful Land. And uh, I, I read somewhere recently that you were saying you wrote Sultans of Swing and Money for Nothing, nothing in, by way of spying on the world. But then you realised when fame came to you that people were looking at you and it changed your way, it kind of encroached on your style of writing, well, did no, it? Well, I mean, no, I mean, I was exaggerating somewhat. I mean, it's just that, you know, some of the, so, some of the songs that you write, you are actually just leaning in a doorway, you know, and, and looking at things. But you get the impression when you're first successful that people are, are looking at you and you're not used to it, is what I meant. You're not okay. used to the reversal. But in fact, you get used to anything. I mean, it, and it doesn't bother me at all now and in fact people aren't looking at you at okay. all I mean that's what I think I think actually people don't really care <laughs> uh, and uh, you know I just go on looking at the world just the way I always did and and you know and writing in, about in, it in writing about it just the same and yeah. was money for nothing but from standing behind a, a shelf of, of microwave woman of home you want to start that yeah, one yeah. again yeah. Uh, there are many stories as to the actual roots of money for nothing yeah so was it written from behind a shelf of microwave ovens in a, in a New York store? Yes, it was. It was, it? In a, it was in a, an appliance store in New York, and 
at, at that time I was living uh, I, I spent a few years doing uh, living in London and and living in New York at the same time I was doing sort of a 50 50 and um, I, I, I was in this uh, store and it was uh, there was a kitchen display unit in the front window and with a table and chairs and a you know whole thing and then you'd walk in and then there'd be these long rows of of uh, fridges and, and 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 stoves and things like that and then at the very back was all the electrical stuff there was a big walls of television sets and they were all tuned to mtv okay. and um this guy that had been delivering in the back there was sounding off you know this bit macho man and uh meathead bonehead <laughs> and he was going at it he had an audience of two he had a, there was a salesman there in a, his little suit and tie, and there was a little boy there who was probably helping him out, a stockroom boy or something. There was me, and so I was trying to back off because I didn't want the salesman to stop him because what he was coming out with was so good. So in the end, I sort of started spying behind a, uh, like a, a microwave. So I remember like seeing these microwaves up at eye level, and I was sort of peeking through a hole in there, uh, in between them, um, uh, and uh, I got, you know, some of these lines, actually, the, some of the lines were so classic, and they were all in my mind, so I had to go, and I didn't have a piece of paper or a pen, so I went and asked at the office bit of the, eventually, and uh, I sat down, there wasn't anywhere to sit down, so I actually sat down in the kitchen uh, display unit in the front window and started writing the song down there. <laughs> and you nuked the meathead in the song, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but he was classic. I mean, I still remember, I still remember his voice. You know, he was sort of... Uh, you know, you'd say, what's that Hawaiian noises? <laughs> stuff like that. He just sort of gave me all the lines. Like, look know. at those faggots and all that and all that yeah, stuff. That was all his, the his... whole thing. That ain't working. Yeah. That's the way you do it. You know, maybe get a blister on your little finger. I love that. Did he ever come after you for co-writer rights? <laughs> <laughs> no. Did he ever try and punch no. you out? <laughs> I never met him again. Okay, well, let's hear us the song. Mark, we talked earlier, you were talking earlier about the kind of uh, the Celtic, where you discovered the kind of Celtic influence. Mm. And you tapped into that by using people like Paul Brady and, and Limo Flynn mm. on the Cal soundtrack. Mm. And that seemed to be another part of a musical language, like writing yeah, that stuff. Yeah, and I mean, well, I, I, since I was little, because I was born in Scotland, and, and you know, we, we, we moved to Newcastle when I was eight. Uh, but I, I, the, the earliest music, I'll remember some of the earliest music is Scottish country dance music, you know, Jimmy Shand. Uh, Andy Stewart and all of that sort of stuff and uh, I I remember clearly you know that some hearing music in school and 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 I mean I I I didn't realize it until only a couple of months ago but I've even probably borrowed some of the phrasing in what it is you know the guitar phrasing do 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 uh, could be like in Scotland before you you know it could right. be from the Bonnie Banks of Loch Lomond so this is stuff from three years old, from four years old. You don't even realise, you know, that you, you're doing. Uh, and uh, uh, so, so the Celtic thing, when it was time to do like local hero and stuff like that, it was it wasn't so difficult for me to reach in and make that kind of music, you know. And with Cal, it was a similar sort of thing. And obviously, if you if you're using, uh, you know, the heavy heavyweights. And I mean, when it got, when it came up to uh, Golden Heart time, mm -hmm. one of the first things I did was just go to Dublin. And because um, I'd written these things, I'd written a couple of tunes like, uh, uh, you know, uh, A Night in Summer Long Ago and Done With Bonaparte and Darling Pretty and things. And I wanted to, 
to to work with these players and and Paul Brady who was a, an old friend of mine from a long time back um, uh, put together uh, the, the the group of heavyweights that actually I ended up getting involved with uh, which was you know which was which was Liam O'Flynn uh, Donald Lunny Marcin O'Connor mm -hmm. and uh, you know and so on and so on um, so it was uh it was it was great, you know. Sean Keane from the Chieftains, yeah, of course, yeah. and um, and uh, so we, we, you know, we we just had a lovely time, and I, and I've been able to come back and do do things with Donal, uh, you know, I've done a couple of times, and uh, you know, and with Liam, for their recordings, and uh, it's it was, it was lovely being able to take those guys and bring them out on the road a couple of times in '96, right? Okay, uh, as well. So I've always no, I've I've always had a um, I suppose, but I, I actually I had a thing about the Celtic thing, but I suppose as well, you know, that it's Scottish. Uh, I mean, I actually asked the Irish guys, I was asking, I was, it was Derek Bell was there as well, he was working with us as well, and I actually asked them, I said, is my Celtic, uh, is it Irish to you or Scottish? He said, oh, it's Scottish, Scottish. Derek. And, 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 and Martin, everybody said, everybody, uh, I think it was, uh, it was, uh, I think it might have been. Uh, you know, I said, "What? What? What? what uh, how? How? You can tell by the the intervals, <laughs> you know." See, Derek said, would know, wouldn't he? You know, I, what's an interval? You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> time to take a break for tea. <laughs> time for an interval. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you, I know you have said that you don't. You mentioned earlier about kind of when you went to America that you'd come out of like a marriage breakup and you were feeling a little bit shattered, battered, right? And I know you say you don't write directly about those subjects. You, you're more a narrative writer. But when you write some of your dark, moody music for for movies or that, now I know you've got narrative. You're, it's dictating. But do you ever do you ever feel you're expressing yourself at that level without having to put words to it? Well, I think so. I mean, you are doing, you know, to a certain extent. Actually, uh, the, the trip to America was was very important because I was really determined when I got back to get the songs going once and for all you know stop playing with uh, you know just stop playing the R&B and rock and roll and the rockabilly for a while and just get concentrate on my own songs and get them recorded because they were pushing starting to push very hard right. all the time I was doing the t in teaching and all the time I was uh, you know d uh, working and other stuff uh, but the, the songs were pushing harder and harder to, to me to get going I think the personal side of it comes out a lot when you're feeling down. You know, I think that can happen. You know, you it, uh, you can get uh, some of it off your chest right in that way. I mean, I think anybody that plays an instrument, and you know, you, the instrument is your friend, and uh, you know, it will come out that way. I mean, once you start getting used to being a writer, you start thinking, you, you, you know, your idea of yourself starts to move a little bit away from being a half-baked guitar strummer and you know to being a half-baked kind of writer you sort of drift across from one to the other you start thinking of yourself as a writer then you're using the whole gamut of experience you're using things that you see you're using things that you read you use things that you but obviously you're using stuff that you feel as well that becomes part of it your own experience becomes part of it I tend to sort of use a big mishmash of the whole lot right you were told at the beginning by the BBC that one of your songs had too many words weren't you Oh, no, I wasn't told well, wasn't that, that I asked that. that. I love oh. that. Yeah, it's true. Absolutely true. <laughs> absolutely true. Was it Sultans of... Was it Sultans? Yeah. yeah. They had too many words, so they didn't play it. Oh, well, what happened was uh, there was a there was a committee on uh, 
uh, Radio 1, and uh, it was chaired by a peroxide lady whose name I forget. And, um, um, and uh, the record was a big success all over the world, and uh, except in the UK where this committee had decided that it, it, it wasn't going to get played because it had too many words. I asked about it. And they said, no, it had too many words. And I think that's great. Because absolutely right, of course. <laughs> okay, let's hear too many words. <laughs> Just as an insert. Okay, coming out, coming out of Sultans of Swing with far too many lyrics there. Um, I have heard it said that even, and even reviews of the new album, that you have a problem stopping songs, that songs go, you let them go on too long or that. Do you find that a creative challenge? Like, how do I'm I just, get out of this song? I'm just too long with just about everything. I mean, you know, I'm, I mean, it took, it's far too long to make the record. I, do, I, I mean, one of the reasons why it took so long is that I did four films, I think, during... You know, I'm just easily distracted, and that's what they said about me in school. All right. And uh, I have very little self-discipline. And, uh, you know, if a song decides it wants to ramble on a bit like <laughs> me, you know, it will. <laughs> You worked. I was. I was interesting. You went before you did the, the uh, Dark Straits thing really took off. You were doing a couple of things. Like you, you worked with Dylan, who was described by many as too many words and a lot of songs. You also did a solo on an album I bought with Scott Walker called Climate of Hunter, and he's a minimalist. Do you remember that? Oh, I Blank remember that session. Blues. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, I remember that. Uh, it, it was just one track on the album. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was so out there that I I decided that it might be a good idea to. To, instead of recording it in the studio, we could just record it in the control room. So Scott got a, just a, he thought that was a good idea too. Which, of course, thinking about it, it was probably a completely daft idea. Still sounds good. It's a good acoustic line to his voice. And you, it, most of the song is you playing. He doesn't come in for about a minute and three quarters. I played two guitars on it. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that's all it was, just those two guitars, isn't it? It's a yeah. nylon strung and, it's, and the national. Yeah, and his voice. Yeah, and he's just got a handheld mic, like a 50, 50, 58 or something in the, in the control room, and, um, uh, which it makes it sound more like, uh, like a home recording, and that's the way I sort of... I suppose that's why I suggested it, uh, so that it would sound more as though we'd just you know, got in front of a tape recorder and done it, which is basically what happens. So uh, I'm coming back to another of your heroes. You have him on the new album, Van. I mean, you also worked with him in the '80s on Beautiful Vision. You know, yeah, well, was he? I know he's one of your heroes, but would he have mm. influenced your your style of writing, your style of playing, singing? I mean, is he that kind of influential? Well, I don't know. I think Van certainly. Uh, I mean, Van was part of the fur my furniture of my life. You know, I mean, he's I've played in every kitchen I've ever lived in. He's played in every room I've ever rented. Uh, Not live, I presume. Uh, no. <laughs> and, you know, I loved them when I was at school because I, mean, I loved all the beat groups. And so I've been with Van ever since, you know, all the way, way through his entire thing, all the way through my college. And, I mean, I saw Van, you know, at Newcastle City Hall again, where I saw Chuck, the same hall. He came with what, what he called then the Caledonia Soul Orchestra. And it was just unforgettable for me. And I was a huge Van fan at that point. And so it was, it was very nice that he asked me to go and work with him in the 80s. Uh, uh, and to do uh, things like Cleaning Windows was great, you know, and uh, it's still one of my favorite songs um, uh, for all sorts of reasons that, you know, it has, it's about his influences as well. It's about, uh, 
you know, here in muddy waters yeah. and, and lead belly on the street where he was born, you know. And uh, so I've always loved Van, of, of course, and uh, his... You know, I, the influences, I suppose, are there. Just they, they just. Uh, I mean, e even when I was writing the song, uh, Van started taking it over in my head. You know, while I was, as soon as I got into the the first writing the verse, first verse, and I, I could hear Van, and so it was again it's lovely when, you know, when he really did sing on it, and of course it was even better than I thought that it would be. It's a nice moment, you know. Well, so, but did you write The Last Laugh with him, you know, as a narration, as a song for him, or did you just start hear him singing as you, as you were writing it? Oh, no, I wrote the song, and then, you know... realised he was right for it. So shall yeah. we play Cleaning Windows or The Last Laugh? Cleaning Windows? <laughs> what? <laughs> it got me there. Assuming we played The Last Laugh, that was a tune from, from your latest albums. I suppose this question you're tired of being asked. For, for fans of Dire Straits, are, are, should they look forward to any kind of reunion or will it just be solo work you're concentrating on? Well, I think in terms of recording, I love what I'm doing now. You know, I, I, uh, I feel as though I've got a, you know, a lot of freedom of movement. And I just enjoy drifting about the world and doing what I'm doing, you know. But uh, uh, we could always play live. I think uh, the band, I mean, we did actually, would we would break up for a couple of years after the end of every mammoth tour that we did and i would go and do some films or whatever just to have a more interesting life i suppose uh, but uh, we would get together and play we would we got together and did the nelson mandela thing you know at wembley and um uh, we had to get back together for that i remember and uh, we got back together in fact not so long ago to do john's wedding i mean you know these longtime girlfriend uh, a couple of years ago uh, which was enjoyable as well. So, right. uh, it's possible that we could play together, but I don't. I don't. I mean, I'm I'm really enjoying my sort of where the wind's blowing me at the moment. You know, is, is, is Brothers in Arms, which I believe still sells a thousand copies a week in Britain, is that any kind of a doppelganger? Is there anything so you're kind of going, oh God, you know, I have we have to live up to that. I have to live up to that, or is it just you're no, happy I mean, with the no. achievement and it's. No, it's fantastic. It was a great time. I mean, it was it was just pure luck because there was. I mean, there were a lot of circumstances that sort of all gelled together to make that critical mass thing happen. But uh, I mean, I mean, I wasn't—I would never have expected sailing to Philadelphia to be doing what it's doing. I yeah. mean, around it's, Europe, and it's ridiculous. So, you know, I—I'm just really delighted because I know that that when I go on tour, it'll be great fun tour. Okay, because when we were talked about the Scott Walker album, which I believe is one of the lowest selling albums in history. It's all about twelve thousand copies. So you went from that to one of the largest selling albums in history. That was a pretty good evolutionary move, wasn't it? It's just who knows about this. It's yeah. like it, it, actually working with films from you occasionally has taught me that that there's no rhyme or reason to any of it. All right, but you are, as you say, hugely uh, delighted by the success of your new album, which is phenomenally popular. It's great because it means the tour will be fun. All I mean right. that. I mean, I don't have to sell a gazillion records, but the, the fact that it is means that the, the tour will be great fun, you know. And that I'm looking forward to it big time. And it also, I'm organising it so I can have a couple of weeks on and then maybe have a week off, at, at, which is great, you know. Because right. it's not the way I've done it in the past. It's not the most practical way, but I'm looking forward to doing it that way. Yeah. Okay. And you talked about using Van's voice. Uh, you have a good range of guests. You have James Taylor, you have Gillian Welch. You talked about her and the Squeeze Boys. I mean, again, did they come to you as you were writing the songs and you realised these are right for this narration? 
or did you decide in advance? It's a specific request. I mean, you know, it's just something that you envisage when you're writing. And uh, I actually recorded a couple of things with Emmy Lou uh, Harris that I really want to enlarge on. I was just into that working with different voices, and and uh, I'd like to uh, go and record some more things with Emmy. I'd like to record some more things with Gillian, and. Um, uh, maybe do something in that area too. I'm just kind of interested in that right now. Okay. The man-woman thing. All right, the dual voices, the two voices. Yeah. Oh, okay. All so right. that might happen. Okay, so if we want to play a track to lead us out of the show uh, from the from the new album, which one do you want us to play? And you can talk us into it if you wouldn't mind. Oh, well, no, I don't know. I mean, you know, who knows? Give, what give us an option. Give us a choice. I mean, uh, you can take the... You know, just because it's called... The album's called Sailing to Philadelphia, you... Um, you know, you could give that one a, a have a swing at that, uh, the sailing to Philadelphia, which uh, uh, James sings on so well. All right, okay. Give us a second choice, because that's been played a lot on the radio over there oh, as we stand. Yeah, yes, it is all the time. Yeah. So it's kind of because it's getting the airplay already. So it's almost like, can we get one that uh, maybe? What might be nice to play? Oh, I know. Okay. The, 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 no, I don't know how it would sound at the end. Uh, because we referred to and maybe played the, the gospel group. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. If, if I well, ask you that okay. question again, it's up to you. Yeah. You can well, have a go at uh, you can have a go at uh, Bologna again because I mean I suppose uh, a lot of the time I'm not uh, terribly satisfied with the way the records come out. I don't sit at home and listen to them. Um, so it's nice when something works out that where I can kind of bear it, you know. And I think this one came off okay as a studio recording, because you do have that feeling, and you've said before, a song grows, and it mm. sometimes finds its definitive arrangement Later, when you're out there playing yeah, live. Don't you feel right, that? That's right, very often does. It sort of evolves. And, uh, but I think this came up okay. I mean, actually, it was funny because it was when it was in the, in the I remember in the, in the mastering lab, which was Denny Purcell's mastering lab, and, and uh, I was mastering the record there, and, and a friend, a good friend of Denny's is Dwayne Eddy. And I got to meet Dwayne Eddy because he's a good friend of Denny's, you know, and he was such a nice man and he was there. And uh, he happened to be listening to Bologna again, again, you know, and he said, I really like that. He said, yeah, and he said, I, I really like that. He said, I really like the country section in the middle, <laughs> you know. So I didn't realize it, you know. That's a funny thing that, you know, I've been that the middle section, the Lotus My Shepherd section, you know, you would consider it a country <laughs> section, you know. Country section in a gospel song? Yeah. Why not? Why okay, not? for Dwayne Eddy, we're going to play this. Okay, Mark, uh, I wish you uh, not just great success next year, but I hope you really do enjoy the tour that you're taking out on the road, and we look forward to you maybe coming to Ireland. Well, thank you very much. I always try my very best to do that. Okay, thanks, Mark. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast. More can be heard, as I said, at joejacksoninterviewer.com.